City Church in Over the Rhine is cultivating the kind of family Jesus introduced to the world in the city of Cincinnati. We're glad you're choosing to listen to a sermon from our weekly service. We would love to meet you. Visit us on Instagram or at citychurchotr.com. Enjoy. Well, hey, welcome. My name's Chris. And uh, yeah, crazy. I mean, if you're uh, watching online, uh, you're probably smarter than the rest of us that are sitting here. Um, so welcome, and uh, it is crazy snowy here today. Um, it was a little bit dangerous coming in, and that was at 7.30 for me. So um, thanks also if you're here. You're crazy. You're dedicated. Um, maybe you just walked. That was probably the smarter play. But uh, my name's Chris, and we are going through a series on our four values. And uh, we haven't really preached on our four values uh, since this church started two and a half years ago, where we took two Sundays to talk about family mission presence formation when I brought the shofar and the degree. And um, so I thought it would be good for us, all of us, not just you, but me, to be reinvigorated with why are we a part of this church? Um, Because we're, uh, this church, I don't know if you knew this, this church is a really big deal. Simply because it's a part of the church, which is a really big deal. And the church has been growing and moving and changing and gaining momentum for 2,000 years all over the world. And so what we get to do is jump in on what the church is already doing. And so if you want to know a little bit of DNA about what this church will do, um, that's what these four weeks are about. Starting last week with family, this week is mission. And we're reading Ephesians 4, 11 through 15 every week. Because there's something about that passage that tells us what the church is called to do. And if you read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, it's all about what God has done for us through Jesus. It's about your identity in Christ, and that's the foundation that's laid. And then in Ephesians 4, Paul shifts gears a little bit and says, so in light of that, in light of what God's done for you, here is what I want you all to do together. Here's how I want the church to function. And if you read through, and as you notice what Rob was reading, there's all kinds of transition statements. It's like Paul's building to something that he eventually lands at in verse 15. He says, so Christ gave so that eventually you will, and all of it's building towards verse 15. And it says the whole reason we're doing this, all Jesus did this for us, the church is called to this, so that we will grow to become in every respect the mature body. And so we're talking about in this series um, how Ephesians 4 says the goal of being a part of the body is maturity. A, A churchy word for that is sanctification. Sanctification, the other side of the coin, is justification. Then we're gonna call it maturity. Now, if you're not quite sure about Jesus or if you're watching online and you're like, I'm just still figuring this thing out, you cannot pursue sanctification or maturity until there's been a moment of justification because you're, you're lacking a big tool, which is the Holy Spirit. So justification happens in a moment. Maybe you don't know when that moment was. I'm not quite sure when I got saved, but I know that there has been a decision in my life that I've gone from death to life. And so that's where we immediately and instantly become Uh, regenerated is what the reformed crowd would call it, Uh, saved is what the evangelicals call it, encountered is what the charismatics call it, whatever you want to say, it's where you cross that line from death to life, and you give Jesus not just your sin, you don't just make him your savior, but you also make him your Lord or your king, and that goes together. Now, the good news is, especially if you have recently made that decision, if you're not sure if you've made that decision, you haven't is that you can never be more justified. The older you get in the faith, you can never be more justified before Jesus. As soon as you make that decision, you 
are in Christ. You've been given the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, Jesus says, the goal is that we would become more like Christ over time. That's called sanctification or what we're going to call maturity. Paul says that the goal is maturity. And the best kept secret in the church, and it shouldn't be a secret at all, is that maturity is actually really fun. Guys, it is a joy to become more like Jesus. And, and we talk a lot about the burden of following Jesus. I think we've allowed ourselves maybe a little bit too much to sit in the burden of following Jesus. And make no mistake, following Jesus will cost you everything. But it's absolutely free. And so the burden is real. <clears throat> but also the burden is way less than the joy that you get. As you become more like Christ, you get more of his presence. And that, that's actually really fun. It is fun to become like Jesus. The joy is always greater than the burden. So maturity is the goal, and the reason that we want to pursue maturity is because, one, Paul said so, but not really just so much Paul, because Jesus said so. Also, it's because there is something that happens when we become more mature and we position ourselves to be um, ready for whatever God would have us. And in an individualistic culture, we often think, I need to be ready for what God calls me to do. But actually, I think a lot of it is what can we be ready for if God chooses to use us? And I want to talk a little bit about, there's been um, a lot of prophetic words outside of this church about what God might do in Cincinnati one day. And I want to just say, okay, let's say that God brings revival to Cincinnati. There's two questions that I want to ask. The first one's probably more geared towards me. The second one might be a little bit more what we talked about this morning. But if God chose to breathe on the city of Cincinnati and bring revival and renewal here, first question, if he did that, if God brought, God brought revival to Cincinnati and he chose actually not to use city church, would we be okay with that? If all of the other churches are baptizing people like crazy and people are getting discipled in their workplace and we're being faithful, but it's happening in every other church except for here, would we be okay with that? Are we bought more into um, this church or me getting uh, any kind of credit, you getting any kind of credit, or are we bought into the kingdom? And again, that is a question probably more for me than anybody else. That would be hard. But I want to be so bought into the kingdom that that feels like a win. That is a win. We're after the kingdom of God coming to Cincinnati. And there was a lot of talk um, when Billy Graham, his health was declining, and especially after he passed away, there was a lot of talk of who would take over the mantle of Billy Graham. Who was going to be the next great evangelist? What man or woman was going to carry that? And, and at least in my circles, the, the general consensus was this phrase. It wasn't going to be a man. It wasn't going to be a woman. It was going to be not one person, but it was going to be a nameless and faceless generation. The, the, the word was that it's a nameless and faceless generation, which is such a beautiful illustration until you realize that you might be nameless and faceless in a move of God. Are we so bought into the kingdom that we're willing to be nameless and faceless. And if God moves in Cincinnati and he uses everybody else and we're still faithful, but we're just where we're at right now and nothing really changes here, but everyone else is baptizing, are we so bought into the kingdom that that's okay? Number one, if God brings revival to Cincinnati and chooses to not use City Church, are we okay with that? Number two, and probably more pertinent to the conversation this morning, if God brought revival to Cincinnati and he does choose to use City Church, will we be ready 
Will we be, is this church a church that's able to sustain and jump in and join God in what he's doing if he brought revival here? And here's what ready looks like. Uh, ironically, it doesn't look like that this morning, but I said ready for us, especially given recent numbers, is about 200 people that are living missional, presence-centered, counter-formational lives together. Now, that's a mouthful. That was awful. I'm so sorry for that. But that's our values wrapped up. When we say ready, we're not saying, I hope the pastor is ready. I hope our house group leaders are ready. We're saying roughly where we're at, 200 to 250 people living missional, presence-centered, counter-formational lives together. And if God chose to blow on Cincinnati the wind of his presence, would we be sails? Would City Church be a sail that was ready to catch him? So let's talk about what that means. Three big pieces of that, all in the context of family. I talked about family last week. Number one is mission. And to understand mission, we have to understand that Jesus started and ended his call to the disciples with mission, and I think he does the same thing with us. I read a passage last week when Jesus called the disciples to follow him, and when he called them to follow him, in that same uh, conversation, he said, I just need you to know, this is going to be like we're going somewhere. It's not just like a huddle where you're going to watch me do some miracles and then you're going to take notes. No, we're going to go somewhere. There's something that we've got to bring to the earth that isn't here right now. And he said that in Luke 5. He said that when he called some fishermen and he said, hey, you'll no longer do what you're doing. You're going to become fishers of, fishers of men. You went to Sunday school. <laughs> Guess what I learned this week? That's not a translation in any of the New Testament. No translation says fishers of men. I feel like my entire Sunday school upbringing is founded on a lie. I was taught that I was going to become a fisher of men. No translation says that. So we're going to jump on King James. Here's the call of what we're supposed to do. Jesus says, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Write that on your bathroom mirror. (laughs) Jesus starts in Luke 5, and he says, I'm going to send you on mission. If you're going to do this, if you want to be a part of this family, we're not just hanging out, we're going somewhere. And for three and a half years, they do life together. Jesus is crucified, buried, resurrected. And then he says this in John 20. This is the end. Same group of guys. And he says, hey, just so you know, I'm about to leave, but I want you to know nothing's changed. Actually, one thing has changed. He said, as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. And he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. We live in that mandate still. Jesus in Luke 5 is saying, hey, we're going to live on mission, but I'm going to be with you. And then he says, actually, in John 20, we're going to live on mission. As God has sent me, now I'm sending you, but you're going to take the Holy Spirit with you. And we're still living in that mandate now to carry the kingdom of God wherever we go, to display radical love to everyone, and to bring the gospel of reconciliation of God and man to the earth. Jesus calls us to live on mission. It's the beginning and the end. And so for this church, we've had two big uh, passages that we've kind of defined mission as, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. The one in the Old Testament, we're going to read both of them uh, to kind of define how city church does mission. Jesus calls us to mission. How does city church do mission? It's in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, anybody want to guess what verse? Jeremiah 29. No, it's never 11. Think, I totally baited you for that. Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm never going to preach. I mean, it's just so out of context. You see it in Hobby Lobby everywhere. Jeremiah 29, the context there is important. We're actually going to read 4 through 7. I know you're excited for that too. 5 through 7. The context of Jeremiah 29 
in which that great verse comes out of is actually God is calling his people, they're being exiled to, from the promised land, from God's land, to godless, secular Babylon. They're being forced to make that journey. That's the context. And here's what God commands to his people as they're leaving God's land to a godless land. Now, this might be a little bit different than what we think. He says, when you get there, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, here it is. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, if God says that to his people that are being carried into a godless, secular place like Babylon, what do you think he would say to us, his people again, in a wonderful city like Cincinnati that we actually choose to live in? I don't think he'd water it down any. I think he'd say the exact, yeah, make this place feel like home. Build houses, plant gardens, or whatever the equivalent of that is. Make this place feel like home. And then I want you to pray for the city because if it prospers, you too will prosper. How much more would he call us to engage in that mission? And so when we talk about living on mission, mission is, and it's often defined as preaching the explicit gospel that God has come to reconcile us to himself. And we have to preach that message. It's the greatest news of all time. But we often stop there and say living on mission is preaching that gospel and that's all it is. But when you read Jeremiah 29, 29, five through seven, we'll edit that out for everybody online. When you read that, it seems like it's more than just the preaching, right? It seems like we're, like Babylon should look different if we're there. Cincinnati should look different if we're there. Cincinnati should be better if we're there. We don't remove ourselves from it and let the sinners be sent. No, we're in there with them. We're in it with everyone. Cincinnati should look more like the kingdom of God because we're there. And if God can call them to do it in Babylon, I promise he's calling us to do it here. So you cannot, and and this is true, you cannot live on Christian mission until you've received the Christian, uh, you put your faith in the Christian gospel. But Christian mission is more than just the preaching, it is the bringing of action. It's what Lauren Cunningham calls the two-handed gospel, it's what James calls word and deed, it's what every church planter from 2010 to 2020 calls just loving God and loving people, just want to love God, love people. It's awesome, I don't know why they sounded high in that, but... It's like the, it's the, and it's true, it is true, love God, love people. It's what Jesus calls bringing the kingdom, and it's what I'm going to call, or I'm sorry, what I'm going to describe as bringing spiritual life and biblical justice. That's what living on mission looks like here at City Church. We want to bring both hands of the gospel, spiritual life and biblical justice. Now, before, and you like clap and say, oh man, finally a church that gets it, because I can tell you're just all so engaged right now. Online, if you can't see, they're just like begging to like start an uproar. Before we say, oh man, finally, this is what I've been waiting for, I want to read the second verse, because this one's the kicker, and this one is really going to define and encapsulate how we do this. We've already read it, actually, but I'm going to read it again. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers 
to equip his people for the works of service. This is the primary verse that we have around living on mission. Because that means the church leader's job, the church um, house group leader's job, pastor's job, church staff job, anyone that you consider a leader in the church, their job is actually not to live on mission for you. It says their job is to equip all of us to do it. Chuck Smith, the pastor that the Jesus People Movement came out of in California, said the primary purpose of the church is not to convert sinners to Christianity, but to perfect the saints for the ministry and edification of the body. So if you're good at sharing your faith, your job is not just to share your faith. Your job is to equip us, teach us how we can better share our faith. And so we've defined church not as a business, not as an institution primarily, but as a family. And if the church is a family, then the family is supposed to just simply facilitate and empower ministry, not do it so that we can say, I'm missional because I go to that church. I want to be missional not because of my title. I want to be missional because of the things that I do Monday through Saturday. I want to be missional in that way. I don't want you to consider yourself a missional person because you go to a church that might be perceived as missional. That's not missional living. That's not Jeremiah 29, and that's certainly not Ephesians 4. We want to, and we've borrowed this from the business world, and we're going we're gonna to keep it. We want to live a decentralized form of church. We want to not just say, hey, gather, 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 and, and bringing friends here is a good idea. But it's not the end. The end is Monday through Saturday, what are we doing to take the gospel into our little spheres of influence? Because we're all missionaries, every one of us. We're all vocational minister, missionaries, and some of you are smart enough to get other jobs that pay you to do that. <laughs> Brilliant. And actually, this, this thing that happens on Sunday morning, this is not primarily an outreach event. It's a really good thing, I think, to invite people to that aren't sure about Jesus, but it's not primarily geared to be an outreach event. It's in some ways geared to be the largest staff meeting that we have every week. And guys, this one's way better than the one on Wednesday. <laughs> Seriously. This is the largest, and you thought you would, <laughs> who's, that's going to come up in your year-end review. <laughs> this is a gathering of uh, a bunch of vocational missionaries. This is what we're doing here. We're coming together and saying, man, what's the testimony that you're bringing? How can I be, how can I be equipped this week? I'm taking that here. You're going there. This is what the church looks like in Ephesians 4, and that's what we're going to do. And I brought up this illustration last week, I, and I'm going to do it every week. What does it look like? What's the difference when you eat a meal with your friends or family versus when you go to a restaurant? Because there's all kinds of tasks that go into um, preparing a meal, right? You got to shop, you got to cook, you got to bake, you got to grill, you got to set the table, you got to do the dishes. And so, there, I mean, nobody wonders why do we like restaurants? It's because we don't have to do any of that stuff. We go there to the business to make my problem their problem. I'm going to pay you to take care of all of the things that I don't want to do. And imagine the ridiculousness if you go to a nice restaurant and the waiter, the server brings you the bill and a dish rag, and says, hey, I'll wash you dry. You'd be so offended. Like, you're trying to get free labor out of me? I mean, what are you, what are you doing here? What's, what's, I, I'm not, I'm not going to dry the dishes I came here so that you or somebody else could do that. Because how you view something determines how you interact. And so if you view the church as a business, if you view the church as a restaurant, you're like, no, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. That's what, I, that's what I pay you to do. But who responds like that at a family meal? Nobody. 
Who responds? Like, when you have a dinner party, hey, all my friends are coming over, and I ask one of my friends to set the table, what, what one of them's going to be like, no, that's your job? Nobody. Nobody that's my friend anymore, at least. Because there's something different when we view something as family versus we see something as business. And the way that we interact with something often comes out of a place of how we view it. And so what do we view the church as? Do we view it as a family? Or do we view it as a business? Because as a family, we're all coming together. And I'll set the table and you do the dishes and maybe you cook. But when we go to a business, it's like, no, this is your problem. I pay you to do this for me. Ephesians 4 lends itself much more to the view of family than it does anything else. And unfortunately, in the Western church that all of us have probably been brought up in, uh, we have uh, trained ourselves to outsource mission to the professionals. We've trained ourselves. And, and what we've been told is um, bring a friend, maybe, if you're crazy, bring a friend. But hey, sit here and, and sit back and enjoy. We're going to do it for you. And the answer to that is, is yes. Yeah, bring friends. And, and yeah, it does take money to make this happen. Yes. And grab a towel. Start drying. Pray for the city. Engage in spiritual conversations. Invite people into your home. Pray for justice to enter places that there is not justice. Yes, we come here and grab a towel, start drying the dishes. We're gonna, we, there's work for us to do out there as well. And so City Church, question, who's ready to start drying? Who's ready to grab a towel? Because we're all in this. It's not just something we come, that was weak, by the way, but online, I know you guys were screaming in your living rooms. It was amazing. I heard you. We're grabbing a towel because that's what it seems like the church was called to do. So, all that's just intro so that we can talk about the Venn diagram. So, fire up the Venn diagram, please. So happy. It's actually Michelle that sent this to me, so now she's even. Um, And if you weren't here last week, this is super confusing. And I'm not going to explain it, so go back and watch. Uh, How about the next Venn diagram? Thank you. So we have said that this is what we're going after, and this actually comes from Church of the City in New York, uh, John Tyson. In a lot of ways, he and they are doing things, and they're a few years ahead of where we are, and so we're saying, oh, we're going to jump on that. Here's what I want you to picture, because they don't have this. That black area, that's family. That's our fourth value. The context of all of this is family, and so we want to live with presence, mission, formation, and depending on how they intersect or what circle you're living in depends on where you are. But here's the goal. We want to be right where the logo is. We want to be the Jesus followers right in the middle where mission, presence, and formation all overlap because the goal is, of course, living missional, presence-centered, counter-formational lives together. And if we're not living it together, at best, following Jesus is going to be really hard. At worst and most likely, it's going to be impossible. If you don't have friends and family around you that you love and trust, that you can live this out together, it's not going to be possible. So that's where family comes in. But let's start um, by talking about actually what happens when you take mission too far. So jump to the the next one. It's possible to take mission too far. And so uh, I want to illustrate this by talking about economics and politics. It's exactly what I thought you would say. I want you, because it's possible to make mission the God, which makes utopia the goal. So let's say, and believe it or not, in this country, and I think most countries, the goal is economic prosperity for everyone. 
Now, depending on what side of the aisle that you watch control, the government might depend on how they pursue that. And this was more popular in the 80s. But one side has said, well, let's do trickle-down economics. Okay? And what that means is let's not, tax the, let's not have much tax and let's let the rich get rich so that they spend money and it flows down and it generates the whole economy. And actually, that was met with some success, but not complete success. On the other side uh, would say, well, no, no, we've got to make everything equal and we're going to control it all what you might call socialism. And socialism in different times and places has been met with some success, but not complete success. Because these are missional, idealistic goals that are not solving the deeper down spiritual problem. At the end of the day, the rich and the poor all have a little bit of greed in them. And this doesn't work if generosity is not a part, but generosity doesn't come simply by mission. Generosity comes through formation and presence. And if we pursue Solving a secular problem without bringing the presence of God and formation to Jesus into it, we will get secular renewal. And we will be chasing, uh, without success, a utopia that we can't get. And both of these were valiant attempts, but they did not make it happen. So get rid of politics, get rid of economics. What's it look like in the church? What's it look like even in culture today? Guys, we are pursuing, in my opinion, in my life, we're pursuing utopia more than I've ever seen before. And, we, I mean, and it depends who's defining it, but we're going after it so hard that we're willing to cancel anyone or anything at any time in pursuit of this utopia. I mean, we want this so bad. We being not Christians, we as Americans, we as citizens of the world want this utopia so bad. And when mission alone, without presence and formation, becomes the goal then at best we get moments like the Enlightenment and at worst we get moments like the Holocaust. The Holocaust was a really perverted, twisted view of pursuing a utopia. But it had zero presence and zero formation. So we as Christians are saying, no, 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 we we need to overlap. And we cannot make mission the God because if mission is the God, then utopia is the goal. And if you read, whether you're a Buddhist, atheist, Hindu, Christian, Jewish, if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Everybody in the world can get behind that. It's the kingdom of God. Jesus is laying out the kingdom of God. Everybody can get behind what Jesus is offering to bring. But oftentimes, we want the kingdom without the king. We can't have that. There is no kingdom without the king. And if we pursue mission above everything else without the presence of Jesus and formation to him, we're pursuing, we're asking to bring the kingdom without the king. That's secular renewal. Now, it's also possible to go beyond that. It's possible to have presence and formation, but actually forget about mission. This is on the other side. Go to the next Venn diagram. This is what I would call, what Dyson calls, spiritually selfish, when there exists presence and formation, but not mission. Now, over the next three weeks, I'm going to define each one of these where it's missing, and I want you to to just, amongst yourself, uh, say, okay, where am I most likely to miss? Which one of these three, when I get busy, when I drift away from Jesus, which one of these three goes first? For me, th- it's this one. When I get busy or when I drift away from intimacy with Jesus, I'm still praying prayers like, Father, give me your presence. I'm still praying prayers like, Lord, make me more like you. Get rid of the things that aren't like me. That's, those are staples in my prayer life. What I find when I get busy is that I stop living on mission with eyes out there. I stop praying, Lord, would you bring so-and-so into your kingdom? 
Father, would you bring justice to this area of our neighborhood? Lord, would you heal this person of what they're going through? So for me, in my moments that I'm not looking and uh, having these things overlap, I can seem, I become spiritually selfish. Where, over the next three weeks, where is your miss? It's good to be aware of that. And so what living on mission means is that our prayers, our time, and our money are pointing towards two things, are pointing towards bringing spiritual life and bringing biblical justice. Number one, bringing spiritual life. It's that two-handed gospel. Number one, who doesn't know Jesus that needs to know Jesus in your life? Where does there need to be spiritual life? Where does someone need to be invited maybe to church, maybe to house group? Who needs to get a prayer for healing? What chain or addiction needs to be broken in someone? Where can you bring spiritual life? And, Jeremiah 29, where can we bring biblical justice? Biblical justice, what burns in your heart? What already burns in your heart? What area of injustice just strikes a chord with you? Is it education? Is it poverty? Is it racial injustice? Is it unborn? Is it women in Afghanistan? I mean, you, what already burns in your heart? Because I believe, now this is my opinion, I believe we've been lied to in the rise of media and in the rise of social media. We've been shamed to care about everything all of the time, all at the same degree. And I just don't think that's possible. And we get analysis by paralysis by analysis. And so there's something, there's an injustice that already burns in your heart. And what we need to receive is it might not be the same one that burns in my heart. We're not called to do all of it all at the same time because then we burn out. But what area of Cincinnati, maybe what area of the world, can we bring justice that there is not right now? We're not meant to carry it all, but we are meant to carry something. And so living on mission in City Church means we are at the same time. How do we bring spiritual life and biblical justice to a city, to an urban core, to a world that does not have it? Um, we're going to keep talking about this, this family meal um, every week. I want to build on it a little bit, but I want you to think, maybe it was Thanksgiving this year, but I want you to think about the last time you had a big family meal or a big gathering of, of friends. Um, I'm thinking about Thanksgiving for me. And, and every time that happens, there's usually um, two groups of people that aren't serving, um, maybe three. The first one uh, is kids, right? And it's because kids, and this is an objective statement, kids are, aren't mature. Like, no one thinks it's a good idea to give a seven-year-old a cutco knife and say, hey, peel these potatoes. Like, there's a maturity that hasn't happened yet. We're not, just go play. The second person that when you come to a gathering that often isn't serving is a guest. I'm thinking about the first few times that Catherine came uh, and hung out with my family or one of my family meals. It's like, no, just sit there. Like, no, we, we want to, like, can we get you something to drink? I watched them as they, they let her come in because she was a guest here. She doesn't have to serve. Ten years into marriage, now it's like, you better bring a casserole, Catherine. <laughs> I'm just kidding. My family loves her more than they love me. <laughs> so. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> bring that up in counseling this week. So there's... <laughs> There's the immature, there's the guests, there's kids, there's guests, and then occasionally there's a third person that isn't serving. And I don't know what it looks like in your family or your friend group, but often it seems like it manifests with that weird uncle, right? That weird uncle that comes in, plops himself down on the recliner, starts barking orders to the youngest member of the family to bring him a drink, 
The family exists to serve him. That's why we're there. Now, in the church, um, if you're not quite sure about Jesus, we're not asking you to live a missional life. We're asking you to just be here and say, look, is Jesus, does Jesus fit? Is this making sense? Do you need to ask some questions? We're so convinced that he is absolutely the best thing for you. Don't try to pursue bringing um, spiritual life to a place when you're not quite sure if spiritual life has entered you. That's the first one. The second one, if you're a guest and you're a believer in Jesus, then you should be living missionally Monday through Saturday, but we're not asking you to join a team. Don't serve in kids next week. If this is your first time here, just be here. Make sure this place feels like home. But if, if you're neither of those people, don't be the uncle. Don't be the uncle. I, I even have a slide for that. Don't, I mean, don't be the uncle that plops themselves down and says, okay, I'm here to be served. I'm here to be fed. And that's not just in the church. That's as we go out. When you go out, we're not living recliner Christianity where you're trusting that everyone else in your church family is living missionally so that you don't have to. There are people that don't know Jesus that you have the most influence in their life. They're, yeah, it's not going to be me. They don't trust a, pa- a pastor. Are you kidding me? It's, it's the person that's in the cubicle next to you or that sits at the desk next to you in class or the mom that's in the homeschool co-op with you that's not quite sure about Jesus. Those people might not listen to a professional Christian, but they will listen to you. So if you're not a Christian, just be here. If you're checking this place out, just be here. But if it's the rest of us, we want to live missional lives. I want to end um, by reading Matthew 9. And, uh, and you can often, I've said this before, but you can often tell someone's priorities, in, in my opinion, but if you looked at their budget and their prayer life, that's going to be how you can tell uh, what somebody cares about. Now, we can't look at Jesus' budget per se, uh, although he was the most generous person to ever live, but we can look at his prayer life. And here's one thing that Jesus prays. So Matthew 9, if you can put that up, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease. Check that out. He was proclaiming good news and he was healing disease and sickness. It's the two-handed gospel. His idea, not mine. Next. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus prayed for workers. Jesus didn't pray, Lord, reveal where there's injustice in the world, because that's so obvious. He didn't pray, Lord, show me where there are people that don't know me, because that was so obvious too. The prayer that Jesus prayed, the most strategic man to ever live, prayed, God, would you send workers into the harvest? That's how the world's going to change. I see the harvest. It's right here. I see there's injustice. It's all around. Lord, would you send workers here? And he's praying that in context for first century Israel. But I believe that Jesus feels similarly about Cincinnati in 2023 as he did Israel in 30 AD. He wants Cincinnati to look like heaven. And his strategic prayer is for workers. So last question, last point. Are you willing to be the answer to Jesus' prayer? Are you willing to be the answer to Jesus' prayer? The most strategic man to ever live, and he's saying all we need, what we need more than anything is we need workers to be sent up here. And, and I know it's a, it's a more empty room than normal, um, and even if you're watching online, here's what I'm gonna ask. We're gonna be a church that responds regularly. If, if you feel like you wanna be the answer to Jesus' prayer, we're gonna just kneel up front 
Because sometimes it takes a change of posture to symbolize a change of heart. Sometimes we've got to move our bodies to symbolize that we've moved in our spirit. And so um, we're just going to worship. And as we worship, we're going to answer the question, yeah, Jesus, I'm ready to be the answer to your prayer. You're praying for laborers. You're praying for missionaries. I'm in. I'm not going to let anybody else be the answer before me. It's going to start with me. And so um, we're going to worship. And uh, if you want to right now, if you want to respond, if you want to say, Jesus, I want to be the answer to your prayer, we're going to kneel up front. And you can start to move now as we stand up for worship. And uh, there's going to be people to pray in all four corners. Do not come in here and leave with the same burden that you came in with. We're not making these people pray for you. They want to pray for you. Also, the Lord's table is available in all four corners, um, and we can uh, receive it and be reminded of the, the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. But for most of us, it's this right here. Matthew 9, he says, I just need labors. I'm just, the harvest is here. Guys, the harvest is in Cincinnati. Who wants to be an answer to his prayer? Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Sunday service. If we can serve you in any way, please visit our website at citychurchotr.com. If you want to be a part of what God is doing in Cincinnati, you can support us financially. Giving can also be done on our website at citychurchotr.com give.